0: to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. Jesus is the name above every name. He alone is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Listen, if you've got your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 18 and we'll be looking at verse 18. Luke 18, we'll be starting in verse 18. And if you're a guest with us today, thanks for being our guest. We're glad you're here. Uh, it's a great day to be worshiping together. And if you would do us a favor, in the pew rack in front of you, there's a guest connect card. And we would love to have that. You can, After the worship service is over, you can fill it out and, and uh, take it out to the Welcome Center out front. And you can trade that in. We've got a gift bag for you that just tells us how thankful we are that you're here. And so please do that for us. I want to tell you a story about a man um, who once came up to a Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McShane, after one of his sermons. And he said, this man said to the pastor, I have finally obtained peace. Well, the pastor intrigued. He was like, how how did you do that? The man said, well, all this time, all this time I've been trying to enter heaven through the saints door but while you were preaching i saw my mistake and i entered through the sinner's door he said all this time of my life i've been trying to enter heaven through the saint's door but while you were preaching i saw my mistake and i entered heaven through the sinner's door in this story in this story that we just shared and in the story that we're going to look at in just a few minutes We have a picture of a man who spends his life trying to enter into heaven through the saint's door, trying to be all that God wanted him to be, to do all that God wanted him to do. And like the man in church, he found no entrance and no peace. Next week, we're going to look at the story of Zacchaeus, an example of one who finds entrance through the sinner's door, and upon entering, he finds all that he could want or imagine. So that's where we're going today, and that's where we're going next week. And so, if you would, would you stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word out of Luke chapter 18. Verse 18 says, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? no one is good except god alone you know the commandments do not commit adultery do not murder do not steal do not bear false witness honor your father and mother and he said all these things i've kept from my youth verse 22 when he when jesus heard this he said to him one thing you still lack sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me but when he heard these things he became very sad for he was extremely rich Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Isn't that good news? And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. For your word, your word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. Your word is alive. Your word is a light to our feet, or a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Your word is here, it's profitable for us, and we pray today that your word would speak to us. You, through your Holy Spirit, would give us the mind to see, eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to comprehend. Your word today would change us and transform us like never before. Father, please move in this place. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here to do your work and have your will. Please don't let us walk out of here the same we walked in. God, thank you for the hope of of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We celebrate that today. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So today, we've been talking about faith, faith, and uh, the idea of uh, Hebrews chapter 12 or 11 verse 6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. That's God. And so the idea behind this sermon series and and the passages in Luke that we're preaching is, Okay, uh, author of Hebrews, if it's impossible to please God without faith, what kind of faith does it take to please Him? What does that faith look like? And so today, we're diving in and saying... This is what faith looks like that pleases God. Today we look at the idea of faith in grace alone. Last week we looked at childlike faith. The week before that we looked at humble faith. Today we look at faith in grace alone. So I want you to look at verse 18. We're just going to walk through this passage and talk about it as we go. Verse 18 says, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I want you to understand that there are two things that Jesus is going to address in this passage, two fallacies, two things that aren't true that Jesus is going to address, two problems with this man's question. Now, most of us would look at that question and go, that sounds like a pretty good question. I'm interested to hear Jesus' answer. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And let me tell you, there are lots of people around our world, and maybe some even in the walls of our church today, who are saying the same question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But I want you to hear that Jesus addresses two problems. The first problem that Jesus addresses is God alone is good. The fact that God alone is good. The second one that he addresses is it is impossible to earn eternal life. And so he addresses both of those in here. So let's look at the first one um, in this passage number one god alone is good now let me stop well i'll ask that in a minute god alone is good how, how many of you have ever talked to somebody and in the the part of a conversation somewhere in the conversation they even bring this up the thought or the, the the wrong thought that somebody that they know is good maybe you've heard them say something along these lines well well you know he's a good guy you ever heard somebody say that well they're They're good people. She's got a good heart. He's a good kid. We've said things like that, and 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 we use phrases like that, intending to communicate something. The same thing, maybe, that this teacher or this, this young, rich young ruler is intending to communicate when he mentions Jesus as a good teacher. He says, Hey, I want you to understand that no one is good but God alone. He's got the wrong definition of good, and a lot of times we have the wrong definition of good. So he believes that he can earn his salvation because he says, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And that question that is wrong, it's a wrong question. What must I do is based on a wrong perception of what good and bad is. It's based on a wrong perception. One of the problems believing that I can earn eternal life is to believe so, I have to alter the standard of good. What I do is I lower good to the kind of standard that I can achieve. And so in lowering that standard, instead of comparing myself to the ultimate standard of good, I compare myself to people that I know I'm better than. Come on now, somebody. I'm not the only one. I heard the chuckles. We do that. We say, well, at least I'm not as messed up as they are, my marriage isn't as broken as theirs are, or at least I give more than they do, or at least I do this and they don't. And we're comparing ourselves to other broken people, aren't we? And we've missed the point. We've done exactly what this young man is doing in the passage. In the Bible, it's clear from beginning to end that there's no one good save God. And so when we look at what good is, the definition of good in the Christian uh, dictionary should be God alone. And so I want you to look at uh, part of the teaching of God's Word from Psalm chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. It says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Which teaches us something. It teaches us that sin has not simply complicated our lives, and now we've got to figure out how to get past it, but rather it teaches us that every aspect of our life has been affected with the sin uh, that corrodes... Our lives. So, it's like this. It's like walking into a house. You're looking at a house. You're looking for a house to buy. And you go check it out. You've got a, a showing that day. You go see it. And upon you know, just looking at it from the outside, you go, everything is, is looking good. It looks pretty good. It looks pretty clean. I mean, there's a little wear and tear here. But then what do you do? You, you make an offer. You have to get an inspection. And when the inspector arrives, he looks for things that you don't necessarily look for. So he he begins to open up crawl spaces. He crawls underneath. He looks underneath. And imagine, upon closer inspection, you remove maybe a piece of the siding. You pull it back to find that the entire structure of the house has been termite-fested and eaten up with rot. And so the deeper in the house you dig, the more destruction you find. I want you to understand today that if you want to look into a human heart, and you use mine as an example, the deeper you dive into my human heart, the more you find sin has permeated every fiber of my being. Jesus says, no one's good except God. God alone is the standard of good. We can only know what evil is by knowing what is truly good. Sin is defined by being compared to perfect holiness. And so I want you to understand, if you're hoping, if you're out there today and you're just hoping that, hey, what's going to get you into heaven? You say, well, I'm just trying to be a good person. And I'm going to ask you the question, good compared to who? What's your standard? Because if you're good compared to me, you can do it. Way to go. Try harder, work better. You can make it to be better than I am. But when we remember that God alone is good, and God, the one who alone is good, is actually perfect. He is infinitely holy. No stain of sin. And when we understand that that is good, I can never live up to the standard of good that God sets in His Word. What's does it say in Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? And so here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is putting everyone into two camps, the good or the bad. And He said, but God alone is good. So what camp does the rest, do the rest of us fall in? The not good camp. That was nice, Joe. That was nice. The not good camp. That's where we fall. Now, now some people, some people, that's a hard pill to swallow. It's striking to hear the Savior. The one who is love. The one who is grace incarnate. The one who is merciful and gracious. It's hard to hear the Savior say, You're not good. Now, a lot of people in our world, the world that we live in, would say, How dare you? How dare you say, Well, you're not good. How dare you talk about me like that? But I want you to know that that we see in this story and in uh, the story of Zacchaeus two completely different responses to that statement. In this story, the rich young ruler believes he's good and goes away sad. Zacchaeus comes knowing that he's a sinner and goes away with eternal life. And those are our choices today. So I want to ask you a question as we start to look at what must I do, that question, what must I do to inherit eternal life and to understand that it's impossible for us to earn it. I want to ask you this question, are you, my friend, my brother, my sister, are you trusting in your goodness Or are you trusting in Jesus' goodness? Are you trying to enter heaven through the saint's door? Or have you understood that I can never get in through the saint's door, so I'm just going to come in through the sinner's door? Have you understood that Jesus made a way for sinners like you and me? So the second question I want to look at is the the first question that he asks. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Look at verse 20. Verse 20 says, "'You know the commandments.'" And then Jesus mentions adultery and murder and stealing and lying or bearing false witness and honoring your father and your mother. Jesus mentions five of the Ten Commandments. Now, all five of these have to do with relationships to other people. Each one of them can be seen as using people as a means to an end. Remember, the world has this backwards, and we have this backwards sometimes, See, God created possessions to be used and people to be loved. Well, we've turned that on its head, and we love possessions and use people to get them. And that's exactly what we might see when we look at the five commandments that Jesus gives. Is they, these are all things that we might do to get what we want in the end. And so he says, well, it's more something along the lines of, well, what do I need to do to make another dollar? Who do I need to sleep with? Who do I need to kill? What lie do I need to tell to to keep my job or sell this product or get ahead in the game? Stealing time or resources. Not taking care, care of aging parents, which was a responsibility and an understanding in Jewish culture that children would take care of their parents as they aged. And some children might even look at that and go, You know what? The cost is just too great for me to take care of them. And so I know many of your stories, that many of you have made incredible sacrifices to take care of your parents in their aging days. And I just want to say, if that's you, kudos to you. You, are, you have honored your mother and your father well. And so Jesus points this rich young ruler back to the Ten Commandments. He points them to five of the ten. So we have to ask ourselves the question, is Jesus, is Jesus pointing to the law? in encouraging a works-based salvation? What's the answer? No. Of course not. On the contrary, he's pointing to the law to prove that this young man needs salvation. He's not pointing to the law so that if he does all these things that he will earn his way into heaven. Rather, he's pointing to the law saying you can't keep the law perfectly. No one can. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20 says that there is a standard. If you want to earn your way, if you want to earn your way into heaven, there's a standard that you've got to keep. And it's, verse 20 says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes, that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I just need you to know today that my righteousness can't. My righteousness can't, and nor could this guy's. In verse 21, the rich young ruler responds. I want you to see what it says. He, he said, all these I've kept from my youth. How many of you have ever read that story and you wanted to say, yeah, right? Of, except for lying, of course, because you just told a story. I don't know any child that's ever honored their parents 100% as a child. I don't know anybody that's ever not told a lie, no matter if it's a little white lie or a big lie. I don't know what the other kind of lie is. It's just a big one or a little white lie. I don't know. I don't know anybody who's not stolen something, no matter if it's a nickel or a quarter or a dime or a $1,000. I don't know anybody who's kept those five laws perfectly. He says, all these I've kept since my youth. Well, okay. It's almost like now his problem surfaces. His problem comes up right now, right here in this passage, in verse 21, all these things I've kept. See, he believes... Like some of us might, maybe like some of our friends and family members might, he believes that he can stand before God based on his own merit. That's his problem. He believes that he can stand before God and say, Look what I've done, I've kept it all, and that God's going to go, Wow, good job. I'm impressed with your goodness. In verse 9 of Luke chapter 18, Jesus told a parable. We, we looked at it just a few uh, weeks ago. Jesus told a parable, verse 9, to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So look at verse 22. Look at verse 22. Jesus responds, all these, all these things I've kept since my youth. He responds, When Jesus heard this, He said to them, to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. One thing you still lack. And he says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Again, we got to ask ourselves a question. Is Jesus trying to teach us that if we want to go to heaven, we all have to sell everything we have and give the resources to the poor, and then because we've sold all of our possessions, then we go to heaven? Is that what he's teaching? No. No. We've got to remember that Isaiah chapter 9 says that Jesus will be called Wonderful Counselor. And that's exactly what we see in this passage. We see that that Jesus asks the man about his relationship to others, and now Jesus is about to show this man his relationship to God. He asks him these five questions. How about all these guys? And he says, I've kept them. Well, let's look at a couple other ones, and I'm going to show you that you haven't. And so that's what he does. Jesus asked the rich young ruler about five commands about loving people, and he's pointing to the fact that the rich young ruler doesn't love God first. What are the first two commandments in the the Ten Commandments? God says, don't have any other gods before me. And number two, don't have any idols. And so Jesus, as the wonderful counselor, is showing the man that he doesn't primarily have a behavioral problem, but his problem is a heart problem. What's the object of your worship, is what he's saying. We're all going to worship something. I don't know if you knew that. Even atheists worship something. We're all worshipers. We were created to worship. And the question is not if we're going to worship something, but what or who. And so, Jesus is essentially asking this rich young ruler, is God above all of your earthly possessions? And what's the answer? What's this rich young ruler's answer? We see, no, God's not above all of my earthly possessions. Because he says, if you want to go to heaven, if you want to be with God forever, then you've got to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And how did the man go away? He went away sad, very sad, extremely sad, because he was very rich. Jesus, in this very moment, is lovingly and kindly revealing His greatest obstacle to faith. His greatest obstacle. He says, one thing you lack. Now, if he's this rich young ruler is anything like me, I would have said, lack? I lack nothing. I've got it all. Everything I need, I have, and if I don't have it, I'll get it, because I'm rich. And that was exactly the problem. That was exactly the problem. This rich young ruler didn't have the spiritual poverty that he needed to receive grace. Do you know what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5? He says, blessed are the poor in what? Spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Poverty, spiritual poverty, not physical poverty. Spiritual poverty, understanding that my soul is bankrupt before God, doesn't have a dime to its name. My soul before God has not a single thing to bring to the Lord. That is the entrance into the kingdom of heaven. So, hey, are you out there and you say, well, I just don't have it all together today. Good, that's good news. I'm glad you know that because the gospel is for you and for me because we don't have to have it all together to enter the kingdom. I don't have to. I just got to know Jesus. So this is what it says. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, hey, you lack one thing. He says, lack lack something. I've got everything. And he says, that's the one thing you don't have. is nothing. And that's the only thing that you need. is nothing. The church reformers uh, called it the empty hands of faith. The empty hands of faith. What do I need to bring to God to be saved? Nothing. Bring your empty hands. That's what you need to bring to God. God, I have nothing to bring to you. I'm a poor beggar looking for a scrap of bread. And Jesus says, I can work with that. I can work with the person who understands their poverty. It's hard for the person who has everything they need. Are you with me, church family? Does it make sense what Jesus is saying? What do I come to Jesus with? Empty hands. I don't come with excuses. Well, I did this because they did this. They started it. We're like big kids sometimes, aren't we? Well, it was their fault. They did it. If they wouldn't have done this, I'd, well, I wouldn't have done this. And we don't come with excuses. We don't come with works. We don't come with good deeds. We come to God with empty hands, and guess what? God finds empty hands, something that he can fill right up. Listen to what he says. Sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, and come follow me. Do you see? If you will rid yourself of everything in this life, I will fill your hands with such treasure that you can't imagine. There is a treasure much greater than the treasure that you have, but if you don't let go of that treasure, you'll never get this treasure. And it wasn't physical money, it was the idol. It was the God of money. It was mammon that was keeping his heart blinded from his need for Jesus. I want you to look at verse 23. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Do you see what Luke does there using some words? He's very sad because he was extremely rich. Verse 24, Jesus seeing that he had become sad said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, notice something. A lot of times when Jesus gives a a, a reprimand or a rebuke, he pulls his disciples aside and he says to his disciples in private, How difficult it is. But I want you to notice something, that right in front of this rich young ruler, he looks and he says how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. See, he's making a point, Jesus is. That if you want to be saved, if you want to inherit eternal life, you don't inherit eternal life by bringing hands full of things to God. What do we come with? We come with empty hands, and that is tough. The empty hands of faith are tough to bring to God. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17 says it like this. Jesus the, the risen, resurrected, reigning, King of kings, Lord of Lord Jesus, says to the church at Laodicea, he says, For you say I'm rich, I've prospered and I have need and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched and poor and pitiable and blind and naked. Jesus, I'll punch you in the nose for that. That's hard. I can't believe, how dare you say that I am wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. I got it all. That's tough for people to hear. And Jesus is revealing, hey, the spiritually rich need a Savior too. The, the rich in this world need a Savior too. The blessed in this world, we look at people, they got it all together. They got a big house on the lake, and they got all these things, and they got 401Ks and 501Bs and whatever else they got, and they got it, and we look at them and they say, God must love those people. They are blessed and highly favored. I've even seen the license plate, not the license plate, the the tag says blessed and highly favored. Man, let me tell you something, even the blessed people need Jesus too. They need a Savior. Let me tell you something. Preachers' kids, they need a Savior. Preachers need a Savior. You were raised in church, you need a Savior too. No one gets out of this. We all need a Savior. The the ground at the foot of the cross is level. There's no hierarchy at the feet of Jesus. We all come to Him with empty hands. We either all come to Him humbled or we will be humbled. So it's better for me to say, I got nothing, Lord, and let Him fill them. Than to come and say, I have everything, Lord, and let him take it all away. We don't need repairs in our lives. Some of us, we just think, well, if I fix this and if I fix that, I'll be a better person. We don't need repairs. We need rescuing. We don't need reformation. I just don't need to get this aspect of my life together and that aspect of my life together. We don't need reformation. We need redemption. And that is exactly what Jesus came to do. Exactly what he did. To rescue and to redeem those who would come to the grace that he offers with empty hands. And oh, the grace. It is an amazing grace. We should write a song about that. Work on it. It is amazing. Saved a wretched. A wretch like me, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. See, listen, grace is what Jesus came to do. Luke chapter 19 says, verse 10 says that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Matthew and Mark record that Jesus didn't come for those who think they're well. He came for those who are sick. And oh man, the longer I walk with Jesus, the more sick I find myself to be. The longer I walk with Jesus, the more I find that I'm in need of a savior. How about you? I want you to look at verse 26. Verse 26 says that those who heard it said, "Then who can be saved?" <laughs> the rich, it's, it's harder for them to get into heaven than a camel going through the eye of a needle. Who can be saved? And I love what Jesus said. He said, what, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Let me tell you what Jesus just said to you and me. It is impossible, impossible to save yourself. It is impossible for you to stand before the Lord based on your own merits and receive eternal life. It is impossible to be good enough, to be righteous enough because you try hard enough. It is impossible. And for some of us, that might feel like a place of despair. And that place of despair is the exact moment where Jesus can enter in and bring you a righteousness that is not of your own. He can enter into that place of despair and say, you, Are you empty yet? Are you, have you realized that you're bankrupt? Good. Let me make you rich in me. That's what Jesus would say. That's why it says in, in, I think it's 2 Corinthians chapter 8, that he became poor so that we might become rich in him. Not physically rich, but spiritually rich. That's why in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, it says that in Jesus we have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Because when I reach that place of despair and bankruptcy, guess what? Jesus comes in. And makes us rich in Christ and gives us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He gives me righteousness that doesn't come from what I do. Oh, and that's good news. But see, that recognition of impossibility is hard for us. That I can't earn my own salvation, it's difficult and painful to own up to, and that I don't measure up. Man, that stabs at my pride. Does it stab at yours? I can't measure up the God's standard of good, and that's why Jesus came to bring grace. He came to do what I couldn't do, to live the life that I could never live, sinless, perfect. He kept the law flawlessly so that in my rebellion to the law, we could trade. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for me, so that in him I might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. That's grace. He lived the life I couldn't live, and he died the death that I rightfully deserve. He took my punishment. He paid my debt. That is grace. And he did that. Did I deserve it? No. Did you deserve it? No. And that's the good news of the gospel. Grace is defined as God's unmerited favor. There's only one way to receive that grace. It's to come to him with empty hands. It's to enter into the sinner's door, not the saint's door. Stop trying to merit your way or earn your way into heaven and start trusting God's way into heaven. See, He, he Jesus, Jesus says to this man, essentially, if you want to... If you want to come and inherit a heaven, you've got to get rid of everything you trust in so that you learn to trust in God's grace alone. See, obedience was costly for this man. It's costly for us. And if you want treasures in heaven, let me tell you, church family, if we want treasures in heaven, we've got to let go of the things that we treasure here to gain treasure there. I love what John Owen said. John Owen was a 17th century um, pastor in England. He said this, We begin each day with the deeply encouraging realization that I am accepted by God not on the basis of personal performance, but on the basis of the infinitely perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? John Owen says I wake up and the first thing that I put on my mind is that I don't, I'm not accepted because of what I do but I'm accepted because of what he did that's why I'm accepted before God that's great news so here's application I got three little points for application number one the rich young ruler exists in all of us a little bit of him some of us more me a lot he exists in all of us to some degree or another what I mean by that is we are all tempted to stand before God based on our own merits. Do you know even Christians have the temptation to fall, that we fall into this, this idea that man I just got to be good enough I got to try real hard I let God down today because I didn't obey Him well enough. Man, if if I'd have done all these things, God would have been happier with me. And I want you to know this, Christian, that that if you are in Christ, God is pleased with you not because of what you do or don't do. On your best of days, God is not in awe of you. And on your worst of days, God does not throw you out. That you are in God because of Jesus. Jesus. That's it. That's the good news of the Gospel. And and even Christians fall into that trap. I wasn't good enough today. we, We have this pity party on ourselves. And I want you to know that today God is pleased with you because of the infinitely perfect righteousness of Jesus. Every one of us has that temptation. Every one of us possesses something in us that keeps us from obedience to God. Whether you're a Christian or you're not yet a Christian in this room, there is some idol that hinders us from the kind of obedience that would bring us true life and joy and blessing in God. We all have some of, some of that. And we would all do well to say, God, search my heart. Purge me, like, like, like David says in, Isaiah, or in Psalm 51, purge me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. But look, reveal it to me and you deal with it, Lord. So number two, point, point two of application this grace of God frees us from the performance trap. I don't have to outperform you. Isn't that good news? I got, <laughs> I, it's, pastors struggle with this. Because on Sundays, Sunday afternoons, we see other pastor friends all over the country. They, they go, listen... You're not going to believe what God did at our church today. 492 people got saved and baptized all today. And we, other pastors, go, Wow. I guess God doesn't love me like He loves them. Guess what? I don't have to outperform them. You don't have to outperform anybody else either. And that's freeing. I have one person to live for. Jesus. Jesus. Want, Hank said it, Jesus. I got one person to live for. I want to live, because of Jesus, I want to live in such a way that is worthy of a calling. I, I want to make, when I lay my head down on my pillow, I don't have to outperform anybody. I just want the Lord to whisper into my ear every night, well done. wasn't perfect. Actually, it was a little sketchy at times today, but I love you in your mind. That's good news. And lastly, lastly, let's put this last one up there. The grace of God frees us from the power of sin. Some people would say, well, What are you telling me, Ryan? That what I do doesn't matter? That I can do whatever I want? Well, if this grace is so good, can't I just sin away because I've trusted in Jesus? And the answer to that is, of course not, but I need to understand something. Am I living, am I living in a righteous manner because God has saved me or so that I can earn my salvation? Which one? That's a big difference. If I'm living a righteous life so that God will save me, what a horrible existence that would be. Because I never know if I've reached it. But if I'm living a righteous life because God has saved me and it's no longer I'm fearing Him, but I just want to make my daddy happy. I just want to live in such a way that my, my papa, my Abba up in heaven, When I die, he welcomes me in and hugs me, and he says, well done, son. Not so that I can earn my way in, but because he's already done what I couldn't do. This is the most freeing power in the world. Grace doesn't give you an excuse or a license to sin. Grace can set you free from sin. Many of us sin still. We're just struggling with it because we don't understand the power of the grace of God. It sets us free. I don't have to sin anymore. Why? Because He has died for me. He has been raised for me. And the resurrection power of Jesus lives in me. I'm not a slave to that. Why? Because my Father has purchased me out of slavery. I'm not indebted to Him anymore. Why? Because Jesus has paid the debt I owe. My chains are gone. You should write this down. I've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me. That's the the grace of God has the power to set the Christian and the non-Christian free from sin. It's the most liberating force I know of. We celebrate Independence Day, but our Independence Day was not uh, July 4th, 1776, but our our Independence Day was on the cross of Calvary where every sinner found release and experienced the year of Jubilee. It's not an excuse to sin. Paul said in Romans 6, should we sin? Should we continue in it so that grace may abound? He said, may it never be. God forbid that would be true. So what do I need to bring to God today? Empty hands. Maybe like that that, that man who came to Robert Murray McShane after his sermon said, I finally got peace. How? How? This whole time I've been trying to earn my way into the saint's door into heaven. (laughs) But I found Jesus offered me a sinner's door. So I entered there and have peace with God. Let's pray. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus because He first loved me I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. I, Lord Jesus, I know that I don't have it all together, and I know that Jesus came for those that know they don't have it all together. I have empty hands, Lord, and and I know that Jesus came for people with empty hands. I know there are people in this room today that struggle with sin, struggle with their past, struggle with the the present sin that they're in. And Father, I just pray for people in this room that the grace of God would set people free, that there would be a liberated army of God today. I pray, O Lord, that those who have been living in regret and doubt and fear of, can I be saved? Would experience the saving grace of Jesus today. And I pray for those who struggle with measuring up would be set free from that performance game today. Father, that today we would find not only the the spiritual forgiveness of sins in the past, but we'd find today the spiritual freedom from the sins that I struggle with. Work in our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we.